Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 67, An Unnatural Intimacy, part 5. On June 22nd, 1941, the game of World War II changed completely. Hitler, for reasons that have been debated pretty much from the moment itself, abandoned his previous plan for an invasion of Great Britain, and instead unleashed his armies on the Soviet Union. Experienced and well-organized German units blew through the inadequate Soviet defenses. Early in the war, some Western observers were predicting the Soviet Union could collapse within a few weeks. In Tokyo, the invasion of the Soviet Union created a firestorm. The previous diplomatic plans of Foreign Minister Matsuoka Yosuke the previous diplomatic plans of Foreign Minister Matsuoka Yosuke to create a four-power alliance of states opposed to the current international system, composed of Germany, Japan, Italy, and the Soviet Union, were now dead in the water. Even worse, Japan's new German allies, whom Matsuoka had touted as the solution to pressure from the United States, hadn't even considered it worthwhile to tell the Japanese what they were planning. The Japanese got a few hours advance notice. This little slight, by the way, would be remembered during the planning for Pearl Harbor. Matsuoka himself did not even miss a beat. Overnight, he went from advocating working with the Soviet Union to advocating an invasion of the Soviet Union in support of Germany. Some army leaders backed him, stuck in the mentality that Russia was and always would be Japan's ultimate enemy. However, most of the leadership was furious. Had not the whole point of the German-Japanese alliance been to avoid more wars, in order to buy time to finish the war in China? Of course, that line of thinking ignores the fact that the Japanese had no plans in place that could realistically finish the war in China, but that was a whole other problem. Meanwhile, Matsuoka was hit from another angle, the United States. Recall from last episode that in April, the John Doe Associates, private citizens working to maintain the peace, had sent the Japanese government a draft understanding of a potential American negotiating position, the key details of the understanding are a bit arcane, but the important parts are that A. It hinted at potential American recognition for Manchukuo B. It hinted at American willingness to help force the Chinese to negotiate with Japan and C. It hinted that some degree of Japanese influence in Indochina could actually be accepted. Most importantly of all, however, D. The American government was not actually willing to do any of those things. In an effort to convince the Japanese that negotiations could succeed, the John Doe Associates essentially lied about what America was willing to do. Matsuoka sent back a reply to the U.S. based on this proposal, the content of his reply being essentially, yes please, and on June 21st, the day before the invasion of the Soviet Union, he got a reply in turn from the United States. Cordell Hull, the American Secretary of State, categorically rejected all of the Japanese proposals. The United States would under no circumstances recognize Manchukuo, nor would it force the Chinese to bow to Japanese demands, nor would it allow Japanese expansion into Indochina. Hull also added a bit at the end, referencing Matsuoka indirectly. Quote, Some Japanese leaders in influential official positions are definitely committed to a course which calls for support of Nazi Germany and its policies of conquest, and that the only kind of understanding with the United States which they would endorse is one that would envisage Japan's fighting on the side of Hitler should the United States become involved in European hostilities 
to carrying out its present policy of self-defense. So long as such leaders maintain this attitude in their official positions, and apparently seek to influence public opinion in Japan in the direction indicated, is it not illusory to expect that adoption of proposals such as the one under consideration offers a basis for achieving substantial results along the desired lines? This government must await some clearer indication than has yet been given that the Japanese government as a whole desires to pursue courses of peace. Matsuoka was furious at this very obvious jab at him, and at the blatant American attempt to get the Japanese to leave the Tripartite Pact. As a result, he threw a temper tantrum and did what all man children do everywhere when confronted with their failings. He refused to talk to Hull anymore until the latter apologized. This was pretty much par for the course for Matsuoka. He was legendarily self-absorbed. Prime Minister Konoe, for his part, was furious with Matsuoka. In two days, the foreign minister had suffered two obvious political failures, but refused either to take responsibility or resign. The two men went back and forth for around three weeks, with Konoe trying to get Matsuoka to swallow his pride, and Matsuoka insisting that, no, everything's fine, really, I have this totally under control. All we have to do is invade the Soviet Union and all our problems will totally go away, guys. As a result of this infighting, the Japanese missed an incredible opportunity. Had they taken advantage of the German failure to inform them of the impending invasion of the Soviet Union, they could have broken the Tripartite Pact. They could have thus reassured the United States that they were not, in fact, part of a global alliance of fascist powers. Meanwhile, Hitler could have continued to serve the purpose that he was always meant to, being a target to draw the attention of other great powers away from Asia. For that purpose, an alliance really isn't necessary. Eventually, Konoe just got fed up with Matsuoka and decided to get rid of him. However, the Meiji Constitution didn't actually give him the power to fire the foreign minister himself. Instead, Konoe took an artful legal dodge. On July 18th, Matsuoka called in sick for a cabinet meeting. At that point, Konoe arranged for the entire cabinet, including himself, to resign altogether. The rest of the key ministers, again including himself, were immediately reappointed by the emperor, but Matsuoka was replaced by an ex-admiral named Toyota Tejiro. Toyota was put in place because, as a navy man, he was seen as sympathetic to the Americans and British, and because, to be frank, the Americans would have been favorable to anyone who was not Matsuoka Yosuke. Matsuoka himself, meanwhile, was incredibly depressed when he got the news of his ouster. He composed a haiku on his last day in office, quote, Baldi collapses by the roadside during a rainy season journey. He had good reason to be depressed. The man who always claimed to get America had done more damage to the U.S.-Japan relationship in a year than anyone had thought possible. Matsuoka Yosuke would live the rest of his life in relative obscurity and be arrested by the Americans at the end of World War II. He would die in Sugamo Prison in Tokyo, awaiting trial for war crimes. Meanwhile, relations with the military got out of hand yet again. The army, convinced that the Germans would succeed in seizing control of Europe, had been planning to seize control of southern Indochina by July 1941. The rationale for the move was a simple one. It was low risk, France having been brought to its knees, Britain being distracted by Germany, and the U.S., it was thought, being unwilling to fight for Asia. It was also high reward. Southern Indochina was extremely resource-rich. 
Funnily enough, in this case, Matsuoka Yosuke had been the voice of reason. He told military planners that such a move might start a war, and thus that Indochina should not be attacked unless Japan was prepared to go to war with Great Britain and the United States. He obviously meant that, guys, were not prepared for that war, so clearly doing this would be a bad idea. Instead, bureaucrats in the army simply inserted a line into the planning documents released on July 2nd, to the effect that, in occupying Indochina, Japan must be prepared to go to war with Britain and the United States. Essentially, this was a political maneuver designed to provide an answer should Matsuoka bring this up during a cabinet meeting. In practice, it became the first open discussion of potential war with the U.S. This panicked a lot of civilian leaders, but the military leadership, with the exception of more clear-sighted leaders like former Prime Minister Yonai Mitsumasa, were not worried. They believed, obviously, the United States would not object, since Indochina was clearly in Japan's sphere of influence. So yeah, we put this thing in this document, but really nothing's ever going to come of it, so don't worry about it. Except, of course, that objecting was exactly what the United States did. The occupation was completed on July 22, 1941, and the United States immediately protested diplomatically, began reinforcing its forces in the Philippines, and most worryingly of all, began to threaten a petroleum embargo. Part of the reason the Americans were prepared to respond immediately to the Japanese move came from a very important intelligence breakthrough in the previous year. In 1940, American codebreakers managed to break the codes used by Japanese diplomats, known as the MAGIC codes. MAGIC ensured that any information sent to any Japanese embassy around the world, such as Hey guys, we're planning to invade Indochina. Let us know if it looks like that's going to be a problem wherever you are. Was given to American leaders almost before Japanese ambassadors had it. American attention, however, was still divided between Europe and Asia. In Europe, the Soviets were holding out longer than anyone expected, and were beginning to receive some support from the American government by virtue of the Lend-Lease program originally set up to help the United Kingdom. President Roosevelt was pushing for greater American involvement in and support for the embattled nations of Europe, and appeared fairly convinced that American entry into the war in Europe was imminent. In light of this policy, Roosevelt's Japan policy was pretty simple. Japan had to be broken out of the Axis so that war in the Pacific could be avoided, and America's undivided attention could be turned to Europe and Hitler. To that end, on July 24th, Roosevelt met personally with Ambassador Nomura and made him an offer. The United States would rescind all embargoes against Japan in exchange for Japan walking away from the Tripartite Pact and moving out of Indochina. Indochina would become a kind of Switzerland of Asia, it would be set up as neutral territory. Anyone could buy raw materials from there, including Japan. This was an extremely conciliatory offer, because it essentially contained no mention of China. Roosevelt was not attempting to force the Japanese to back off in China, in exchange for the Americans backing off of them. At the same time that Roosevelt was informing Japan's ambassador in the U.S. of this offer, America's ambassador in Japan went to see Japan's foreign minister. The U.S. ambassador in Tokyo was named Joseph Grew. Grew was an old Japan hand, he'd been there for a long time, and a pretty old-school diplomat who was very fond of the Japanese and really believed in the importance of avoiding war. He made it a point to personally visit Foreign Minister Toyota Tejiro to push for acceptance of the American offer. 
He then discovered that, to his surprise, Toyota had never even heard of this offer. Despite the fact that Nomura had issued two separate reports from Washington about Roosevelt's offer, neither one had made it to Tokyo. We know for sure that the details of the offer were sent to Tokyo, because, after all, we had broken Japan's diplomatic codes. But to this day, it's not clear what happened to them once they arrived in Tokyo. Perhaps it was a result of general incompetence that the offers were lost, or pro-German, pro-Axis elements of the foreign ministry arranged for them to disappear. Like I said, we'll never really know. However, now that they had the message, Japan's leaders proved reluctant to act upon it, despite the fact that it was a very good offer. There were three key reasons for their reluctance. First, the occupation of Indochina had been approved in front of what was called a Gozen Kaigi, a term that's translated a variety of different ways. The best one is probably Imperial Liaison Conference. The ministers of government would meet in front of the emperor, in theory to debate the merits of a policy. In practice, however, debate was rarely part of the agenda. Traditional decision-making in Japan is marked by a process called nemalashi, which translates roughly to something like massaging the roots. Basically, agreement to a given proposal is obtained ahead of time behind closed doors, so that when the actual meeting takes place, everything is harmonious, everyone agrees, and there's no unseemly display of disunity. All Gozen Kagi were run in this way. Ministers would present a unified face to the emperor, who would then approve the policy. The theory behind this was that it ensured all branches of government agreed on policy. In practice, it proved to be an artful dodge of responsibility for everyone involved. Governmental leaders could point to the emperor and say that he approved policy, not them. The emperor could say that he was simply responding to the will of the Japanese people, as expressed by the ministers. No one actually had to take responsibility for the decision, which is part of why it's so hard to say who's at fault for Japan's behavior during this time. Imperial sanction also raised some uncomfortable questions. If the emperor signed off on policy, could it be reversed? Could the emperor, at this point more religious figure than the governmental one, be wrong? Was attempting to reverse a policy approved by the emperor sacrilegious? This would also come around to bite the Japanese in the rear. After all, the document approving the occupation of Indochina had also contained that line about not shrinking from war with the United States. Thus, this line, which had originally been inserted to make it look like Japanese planners had done their due diligence, when in fact they had not, now had the force of imperial degree behind it. As a result, Roosevelt's offer, probably the last best hope for peace that there was, was ignored. Prime Minister Konoe later insisted that he did his best to have the offer accepted, but if he did, he did a terrible job of it, which would, to be fair, be consistent with his record as Prime Minister. As a result, when August 1st rolled around and the Japanese reply had not come, Roosevelt decided that he would switch from using carrots to using sticks when dealing with Japan. He put into place a licensing system for petroleum products sent to Japan, in theory, this was not a full oil embargo. It simply cut down on some of the oil being sent to Japan and made the process of getting oil much more complicated. Roosevelt used a rather colorful metaphor to get the point across. The goal was not to strangle Japan, but to, quote, slip the noose around their neck and give it a quick jerk now and again. 
However, if that was the plan, the plan was not well communicated to the Treasury and State Departments, which were responsible for implementing it. Hawkish elements of both departments, such as Dean Acheson, who would later become one of President Truman's key diplomatic advisors, and Henry Morgenthau Jr., who would help draft up America's post-war financial system, ensured that the bureaucratic red tape was such that, in effect, oil shipments were cut off almost completely. In Japan, this produced a panic. The Japanese empire was hugely dependent on U.S. oil for shipments. There are a lot of points where you could step in and say this is where war was inevitable. Some historians put it as far back as the Japanese invasion of China in 1937, some with the signing of the Tripartite Pact in 1940, some with the decision to occupy southern Indochina in 1941. For my money, this is it. This was when the Japanese leadership, propelled by visions of their navy and their nation grinding to halt from a lack of oil, began considering war as a serious possibility and not just a hypothetical exercise. Now, that perspective does place some of the blame of the war on the American government, particularly on Atchison, Morgenthau, and their companions. Not only did their behavior push things towards war, but it ran contrary to the desires of the White House they served. Roosevelt, after all, wanted to pressure Japan into ceasing its expansion, but he wanted to avoid war in the Pacific in order to concentrate on the Atlantic. Of course, it's worth qualifying that by pointing out that it's not like Roosevelt ordered the two to stop. It's also important, though, not to buy into the bizarre narrative put out there by some Japanese revisionists that Japan was bullied, somehow, into declaring war on the West. After all, the crisis as a whole never would have materialized without the combination of greed, arrogance, and ignorance that enabled Japan to lock itself into a brutal war it could not win in Indochina, or totally misread the global situation in 1941. In the end, final responsibility for the war does rest with the Japanese leadership. At any time, they could have thrown the brakes on everything, backed off, and just moved on peacefully. They were given several chances to do so. However, the slow-moving and responsibility-free methods of decision-making utilized by the Japanese leadership prevented them from doing so. Konoe made one final desperate bid to avoid war. He proposed a summit meeting with Roosevelt directly. The two would meet face-to-face in Hawaii in a last bid to work things out. Roosevelt actually proved amenable to this idea, though he suggested that Alaska would be better than Hawaii, since it was a shorter flight for him. However, the idea never came to anything. The Americans simply weren't convinced that the Japanese were prepared to offer anything substantial, or that Konoe, who after all had come to the global stage attacking the American settlement at Versailles, and who had been Prime Minister when the war in China had started, had any credibility as a peacemaker. At the same time that Konoe was trying to work for peace, he was under tremendous pressure from both the Army and Navy general staffs. Both felt that if war was going to happen, it had to happen soon, before Japan's oil reserves started to run low, and before the Americans had time to seriously build up their forces. They pushed for and got a deadline in early October. If all the talking hadn't paid off by then, war would be declared. Thus, neither side really decided for war. Diplomats wanted to keep pushing for more discussion, Army leaders felt that, well, it's not our decision whether we're going to start the war or not, but if we do, we have to go now, now, now. And again, the decision was improved by a conference in front of the Emperor, making it somewhat sacrosanct 
and totally responsibility-free. When the deadline came and went, Conway was left feeling trapped. The Army and Navy were now howling for war to be declared now. Not because they thought they could win, but because now the odds were as favorable as they ever would be. Conway decided the only way open for him was for him and his cabinet to resign. He could take the blame for failing to implement an imperial decision made at the Imperial Liaison Conference to declare war. Peace could be given another chance. He resigned on October 18th, and recommended that his replacement be a member of the imperial family, specifically Prince Higashikuni Naruhiko, who was an army general but well known for his liberal pro-American stances. This gave him credibility with both the army and the pro-peace faction, and his imperial pedigree would make him very hard to disagree with. However, Emperor Hirohito blocked his appointment. No clear reason was given as to why, but my best guess is that his advisors suggested to him that if Higashikuni failed to prevent war, said failure could tarnish the imperial family and place responsibility for what could be a disastrous war on them. Instead, Konoe was replaced by his army minister, a career bureaucrat of little importance named Tojo Hideki. Tojo is an absolutely fascinating character. He had little will of his own to influence policy and was guided by a few simple and parochial ideas about what was good for the army being good for Japan. As a result, he was perceived as something of a hawk, not because he himself really wanted a war, but because war would result in budget increases for the army, and what was good for the army was good for Japan. However, he also showed glimmers of a greater understanding of politics and the dangers of confronting the United States. He had not wanted to be prime minister. He had also pushed for Higashikuni to be the new prime minister, and when he got the job instead, he put Togo Shigenori, an infamously anti-war liberal, in charge of the foreign ministry. All in all, however, one gets the impression of a man utterly unprepared for the responsibility he faced. Indeed, this is best illustrated by what happened when Tojo was summoned before the emperor to be told that he was the new prime minister. Normally, when so notified, the correct response was to state something along the lines of, quote, please let me have a little time to accept my post. However, Tojo froze up completely and couldn't even get the words out of his mouth. He had believed the emperor was going to order him to resign his commission as an army officer for his part in the failures of the Konoe cabinet. He had never even suspected that he would become prime minister. The emperor was forced to cover for him, dismissing him by saying, perhaps you need some time to think it over. From the time he became prime minister to the start of the war, Tojo had six weeks, and during those six weeks he essentially played the part of the schizophrenic. In public, he issued bellicose statements that he thought he had to put out there in order to appease the hawks in his cabinet. In private, he was stalling as hard as he could for a diplomatic solution. At the same time, he was planning for a war should one happen. The planning was handled by Yamamoto Gisoroku, a Navy admiral in the general staff who orchestrated a simple but brilliant plan. Naval orthodoxy, which both the Americans and Japanese were well aware of, would call for a numerically inferior navy like Japan's to try and draw the American navy into its waters, where attrition and submarine raids could weaken them before the Japanese pounced with a decisive blow. This was exactly what Japan had done to the Russian navy in 1905, and it had worked out pretty well. However, 
Yamamoto was well aware that the Americans had read the same books he had. The Americans would know that this was exactly what the Japanese would want to do, and so they would not go on the attack. They would stay out of Japanese waters until their fleet was so overwhelmingly superior that it could never be beaten. That left only one option. The Japanese would have to go on the offensive and strike hard, gambling on landing a knockout blow. Yamamoto Isoroku's planning and his career leading up to that point are absolutely fascinating. I'm planning to do a biography of him this December, in time for the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, and we'll discuss what led to his thinking about war with the U.S. at that point. On the diplomatic end of things, the story from this point on, to my mind, becomes one of nitpicky details. Foreign Minister Togo worked with Ambassador Nomura in Washington, reinforced by a special envoy named Kurusu Saburo, to convince Cordell Hull and Franklin Roosevelt to back off Japan and rescind the embargo. Here, by the way, Togo miscalculated very badly. Kurusu Saburo was chosen because he had been a well-known pro-American in the foreign ministry, but he also had the misfortune to be the ambassador to Germany in 1940, and thus the Japanese signer of the Tripartite Pact. Thus, the Japanese intended him to be a symbol of their willingness to work with the Americans, but the Americans saw him as the physical embodiment of the Berlin-Tokyo alliance. Tojo, meanwhile, worked constantly to push back the deadline for negotiations and to keep the Hawks under control. However, talks with Washington continued to stall out. The mood in Washington was turning ever more against Japan. Togo, Nomura, and Kurusu were unable to get the Japanese cabinet to commit to more concessions, and Cordell Hull and Roosevelt found the present Japanese terms totally unacceptable. Finally, five months after the fact, the Japanese accepted the July 24th offer by Roosevelt to demilitarize Indochina and withdraw, only to be told that that offer was now off the table. Instead, the Japanese were given a memorandum by Cordell Hull, known as the Hull Note, on November 26th. They were told that a lifting of the embargo required total Japanese withdrawal from Indochina and from China, but they were not told that failure to do so would mean a declaration of war from the United States. Still, many in Japan, including Foreign Minister Togo and Prime Minister Tojo, felt that this was an ultimatum. They couldn't agree to the terms without approval from the army, so war would have to be the answer. And that's exactly what happened. On December 8th, December 7th U.S. time, Japanese forces launched the attack they had been planning for, most infamously against the U.S. naval base at Pearl Harbor. Nomura and Kurusu, meanwhile, were given a note breaking off diplomatic relations and declaring war, but for a very silly reason, slow typing at the Japanese embassy, the complete declaration was handed over late to Cordell Hull. Not that that really mattered. Again, the Japanese diplomatic codes had been broken, so Hull had already read the declaration of war. Still, it's nice to get these things in on time when you have to do them. Nomura and Kurusu read the note to Hull, the last line of which was, quote, It is the immutable policy of Japan to promote world peace. If that was their immutable policy, they were doing a pretty bad job of it. Hull, at this point, ever the professional diplomat, completely lost his temper and called them damnable liars, coming fairly close to physically ejecting them from his office. So, in the end, what was responsible for the sudden downturn of relations between the U.S. and Japan? How in 11 years did they go from being partners to enemies? 
the vast majority of the blame must go to the Japanese side. The worst that can be said of the Americans was that they were insensitive to some Japanese concerns, but at no point did they totally misread the situation in the way that Japanese leaders did. It was Japan's leaders, most notably Matsuoka, Konoe, and Tojo, who wildly overestimated Japan's ability to stand up to the U.S., and later through a combination of cowardice, unwillingness to take responsibility, and wishful thinking, failed to pull Japan off of the deadly path on which it had set itself. Japan went to war with the United States not really because of a resounding yes to war, but because no one in the Japanese government had the courage to take responsibility and say no. That foolish cowardice resulted in the deaths of millions. That's all for this week. For more on this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapan. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for An Unnatural Intimacy, Part 6. (laughs) 